everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is uh, Daryl Missy. I am, of course, the director of Children's Division. I'm sitting in my office with uh, all of our deputies here, which are Joni Rogers and Sarah Smith and Terry Armistead. On the phone, coming to us live from Cape Girardeau, uh, is Lauren Masterson. So if she sounds like she's from Mars, it's because she's on Terry's cell phone propped up against a speaker. We're very high-tech around here, but I'm hopeful that we will be able uh, to make it work. May is Foster Care Month, and we're going to be discussing topics surrounding foster care here today. Where do we want to go from here? Yes. Terry, what do you think? Thanks, Daryl. As you indicated, May is Foster Care Month, and we're excited to introduce Lauren Masterson, our program manager over permanency and foster care licensing. Um, She's going to talk a lot about um, how we might be able to recognize our foster parents um, throughout the month of May. And, you know, this is really an opportunity for us to bring together and support our resource parents, our community members, our stakeholders, who just do an amazing job for our foster kids on a daily basis. So, Lauren, first question for you as we enter May and begin to celebrate our resource parents, can you tell us a little bit about what is happening at our national level? Is there a theme this year? So National Foster Care Month is a Children's Bureau initiative, and each year the Bureau and its partners develop outreach tools that are centered around a national theme to support child welfare professionals in spreading awareness. So this year's theme is Relative and Kin Connections, Keeping Families Strong. There are several articles on relational permanency, youth engagement, and kinship storytelling that are available online at childwelfare.gov backslash foster care months. So I know that there's been, you know, in recent years, we know as, as an agency and kind of a system that it's better to place kids with relative providers when we're able to. How many of our kids in care are placed currently with relative resource providers? So we have approximately 50% of our foster care youth who are placed with relatives. And I know, Daryl, this is a um, this is near and dear to your heart. Um, can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on relative providers? I could talk a whole lot about my thoughts about <laughs> relative providers, but I'll try to I'll try to limit it to the time of the podcast. Listen, it, I think about these things from two perspectives. One perspective is from uh, a person who has been a child who had relatives, right, and had a and had a family who had challenges where I could have needed to live with relatives and. In fact, when my mother was, uh, I, I told the story about my mom's mental illness, and she was very sick. She had to, she had to leave and go to a, you know, go to a hospital for three months. And during that time, my grandmother moved in. And if I would have had to leave my house, going to my grandmother is the only thing I, as a seven-year-old, would have found acceptable. Uh, and I, and having represented a lot of kids as a guardian ad litem, I know that that's what they find acceptable. My first juvenile case was a kid who there was this big, terrible, horrible, violent thing that happened in his house. And uh, he originally was being charged as a delinquent and then became a dependent kid when everybody realized, oh boy, he saved everybody. And his one request to me was, uh, if I can't go home, you've got to get me to grandma's house. And that was something of a heavy lift. And and I'll tell you, I saw him. I've stayed in touch with this guy. Uh, He was 14 and I was 26. We're much, much older now. And I saw him just a couple of years ago. And he uh, came up to me and said, I want to thank you uh, for getting me to grandma's house in, you know, in 1993. 
He said, you saved my life. In that spot, you were my only friend. Thank you. And I, I thanked him for that. But I, I, and I thanked his grandmother, who, who, by the way, thanked my law firm by making us a large pot of chicken and dumplings, uh, <laughs> which, was, which was terrific. So, you know, I got those personal things that make me think that. But that's the first silo. But the second one is, I think, like a lawyer. And the law says it. There's a bill in that legislature right now that says you need to place with relatives first. Well, it's all over the law already. And as Terry pointed out, you know, that's the we really mean it statute. Uh, We really mean it. It says you place with relatives first. And that among those relatives, you place with grandma first. And not you place with grandma just if you think grandma's in that child's best interest. It's you place with grandma unless it is contrary to the child's best interest, which means to say not just that grandma is best for this person. It means that grandma is not bad for this person. And there's a difference there. And it's a clear directive from the legislature and our common sense. And I think it's just what we need to do. I was just at Casey last week, and they were talking about relative placements. And uh, and again, in our state, it varies from circuit to circuit as to what it looks like. But there are states who say our goal is 70%. And I'm sitting there thinking, why nobody should top us. Our goal should be 75%. You know, we should work to make this happen because I think it's going to be best for kids. So those are my thoughts in a nutshell. Thank you, Daryl, and appreciate that um, support for placing our kiddos with relatives. I think even amongst our staff, we have a lot of um, folks out there who are relative providers for some of their own family members. So, Lauren, what are we doing in Missouri to really support our relative providers, and what are some of the specific resources that we can utilize to assist our relative providers? Well, we're really proud of our Kinship Navigator services that are available statewide through ParentLink and also regionally through the Family Resource Centers. These providers have warm lines, educational information, lending libraries, as well as connections to resources within the community and other caregiver support groups that are available to relatives um, who are just informally caring for their kin and also available to relatives who've either adopted or obtained guardianship. Currently, we're really working to formalize our statewide approach so that our Kinship Navigator program can be submitted to the 4E Prevention Service Clearinghouse for evaluation. If we get approved, this would make Missouri's Kinship Navigator programs eligible for Title IV-E prevention funding under the Families First Prevention Service Act. And Kinship Navigator is a great service. Months ago, I went to a meeting you guys had, Lauren, in one of your circuits with foster parents. And there were some that didn't know about it, but the ones that did raved about it. So knowing that kind of support for those homes is kind of a linchpin to more engagement and getting more of those homes. And to Daryl's point, we want to be 75% and we're currently at 50%. What are some efforts we can do to engage more relative providers? So I would really encourage our staff to think about and review the placement hierarchy chart that we have available. You know, this is a guide to think about placement options as soon as the youth enters care. Um, I would also encourage our staff to utilize the 30 days to family and extreme finding families to help identify those relatives. Those contract providers can also go in and really kind of talk through and ask those hard questions to be able to assist in determining, you know, is this a good placement or can they be a support in another way as well? 
you know, and as we check in with our families on a monthly basis, when we do have children that are placed with relatives, you know, we can utilize some of the tools that are available to us the relative placement brochures that we have created. It's a great guide to assist in having conversations with our relative providers, help them walk through that licensing process, the benefits for children being placed with relatives, as well as what they can expect from our agency the first 30 days of placement. One of the things I hear a lot too, and I think most of us probably hear, is whether it's a you know traditional foster parent or a relative uh, provider is how they can feel not just supported but also engaged and empowered because they are taking care of the kids for us. They're doing us a huge service to not only the child but us as an agency. So I would be curious also how we can empower our relative families more, make them feel empowered and know that um, there are specific things that we're doing as an agency to give them the support and engagement they need. Right. I think it's really important, again, as we're checking in with our families on a monthly basis, that we really have some, you know, meaningful conversations with those relative providers to determine, you know, what their needs are. We certainly don't want to just add services um, for them, but really digging in and trying to figure out what would be most beneficial and helpful. And again, we have guides and resources available. If you're struggling out there, the guide for relative resource providers really is a a meaningful uh, resource to talk our workers through and have those conversations with relatives about, you know, the case manager information, what our agency looks like throughout the life of the case, how we can engage you, how we can maybe hook you up with different um, family resource centers in the area or also different groups just to provide and lend some support to our foster parents from other foster parents. Are there also things that we could do to strengthen connections to a child's family and community outside of just kind of the relative provider we're talking about? Sure. And I think this goes back to when we start having our conversations around that placement hierarchy and thinking through not only placement options, but also what does it look like for that child um, to have some meaningful connections with relatives. And so asking kids, you know, who they've spent time with during the holidays, who they feel safe with, you know, is there somebody that can come in, a family member that could do mentoring or tutoring? for that child? How can they continue to be that contact and support for the child, even if they can't be a placement provider for that child? And so I think, you know, part of what we need to talk about is um, engaging those relatives to have multiple phone calls with kids, even if they're in another placement with another relative, you know, providing some respite for our relative providers through other relatives that might have the means and capacity to do so. So, Lauren, I want to come back to you and, you know, when a child enters care and a relative is available for placement, but maybe having difficulty becoming licensed, are there any exceptions that would allow a team to place with a relative? You know, one of the things that I have always loved about working for Missouri Children's Division is that our agency does recognize and supports that relatives don't ask 
to be in the situation that they're in, right? When children come into a relative's home, it's often during a crisis, and they step up and get involved. And we have, as a state and as an agency, been incredibly supportive of those relatives by offering a separate licensing track that's specific to meet those relative needs. And that's not available in every state. So by having the separate license, Missouri is able to waive non-safety licensing requirements because of the relationship that children have to their relative families. And it ensures that those individuals who have stepped forward to care for these children have the support and benefits they need to maintain their children safely in their home without also having to jump through all of the hoops that are not related to safety that our traditional foster parents go through. And Lauren, is there a difference, you know, I've heard a little bit about formal and informal resource providers. Can you talk a little bit about what that might look like? Yeah, so formal caregivers are those families that are caring for a relative child or sibling group that are actually in foster care. Those formal families have the option to be licensed and receive benefits like the monthly maintenance, respite, and even guardianship subsidies should the child's goal become guardianship. Unlicensed formal caregivers are also eligible for some benefits based on the child's eligibility. That can include things like clothing vouchers, child care, and medical coverage. Informal caregivers are those relatives that are caring for children who are not in foster care. And they don't always have involvement with children's division at the time they agree to care for a relative child. They don't automatically receive benefits or financial support, and they can be really susceptible and at risk of financial instability by having another child join their home. It's really important that when informal caregivers reach out or ask for assistance, that we connect them with Family Support Division because there is a non-parent relative grant through TANF that is a great way to support unlicensed formal and informal relative caregivers. It's one of the few benefits that provides temporary emergency cash assistance based on the child's income and not the relative's household income. So it can really get some families through some difficult financial times when a child first comes into their home unexpectedly. Another great resource for informal relative caregivers is Missouri Legal Aid. And I use this quite a bit whenever uh, family members reach out to me. There are several resources available on the Missouri Legal Aid's website that help provide information to relative families pre and post permanency. One of my favorites that I share often is the grandparents as caregivers for grandchildren and also a basic understanding of guardianship and conservatorship. They are great flyers um, that have really basic information and uh, helpful links for families. So Lauren, I wanted to ask a quick question because as you're talking about informal caregivers, and I'm assuming that those would fall into kind of the category like we have with TAFA, where the child is not in formal custody yet, but the child's outside the home. 
which I think is so first my question would be is that correct yes that would be correct because I think that maybe I mean all the resource information is exceptional one that we have it and two to know because a lot of people think prior to being in formal custody there's just not a lot of resources for kids and those kids and families in those situations so I just wanted to highlight that well, and the interesting thing about that is it demonstrates us doing something to help besides taking children into mm-hmm. custody. I mean, I think building trust with these families that we're here to help and not here to disrupt or dismember your relationships it would be useful. Uh, and I think it is useful. And I, I'm hoping that we can message that and demonstrate that you know, going forward. What we are is, is, is an agency that uh, is tasked with helping you help your kids. And I think that's a great perspective, Joni. I think that's right. Lauren, are there any appreciation events occurring during the month that somebody could get involved with or in the different circuits to link up and and show appreciation? Yeah, so my birthday may be in April, but May is most definitely one of my favorite months of the year (laughs) because every team across the state at Children's Division and even our community partners, we come together to celebrate Foster Care Month in May. And we do that by showing appreciation to our foster families. So in circuits and counties across the state, there are appreciation events happening every day in the month of May. Some areas will celebrate by giving awards and recognizing some of our more experienced foster families. They will offer respite or date nights to our families. And my favorite is just coming together, especially after the last couple of years uh, when we've not been able to get in large groups. Um, I'm really excited to see this year people coming together to just break bread and have meals and enjoy each other's company. So one of the things that we do to get people to the table at those appreciation events, because not everybody always feels the need to be appreciated, is sometimes we'll offer some in-service training at those events just to get families to the table and really uh, encourage them to come and meet and talk with the other families that are providing care. And what I love about the Children's Bureau's website is they have different training options and information that can be used as part of those appreciation events to give every family that comes a little bit of in-service training and um, encouragement to be there, but then to also really focus on recognizing the great work that they're doing. Thank you, Lauren. I think this is a lot of great information. I'm looking forward to seeing pictures. Please send them in of any of the events that you have um, during the month of May. We would love to recognize our staff as well as our resource providers through social media. So thank you, Lauren. I think this has been a great discussion about you know very important matter. Our foster parents are so valuable to us. The, the ones that uh, we have that our relatives are so critical to because they handle s- such a large number of the kids we have and those kids retain their connections. It's just so important. And Lauren, I want to thank you for your good work and for uh, talking with us today. It's been a, a lot of great information and we really appreciate it. And we thank everybody for listening to this podcast and for being part of our conversation. Thank you all very much. <laughs>